0: parents sacrificed a lot. I had been through a lot. And to have my kids there to see what's possible if you get your money in order just felt like really big. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen
1: your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage Kids and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill. And today we're talking about paying off massive amounts of student loans and the freedom it can provide. The U.S. is currently strapped with a $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. What's worse than that big scary number is the emotional impact that massive debt can have on your mental health. Poor sleep, high anxiety, and a feeling of just being trapped. But there are some who have broken out who are giving us hope. Akoma Maronu Schreiner is my guest today. Akoma and her husband recently paid off all of their student loans and now they are making some exciting life decisions because of it. A little background on Akoma. She is a corporate finance attorney and the host of the Happy Lawyer Project podcast, which helps lawyers leverage their law degree to live the life of their dreams. She's also the author of a new book series called Money Monsters which Zoe and I are really enjoying lately. Welcome to the show, Akoma.
0: Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad to have you here. So how did you guys accumulate your massive amount of debt?
0: Um, Like a lot of people, we went to school. We thought that education was a good investment, which I don't disagree necessarily. But up until graduate school, hadn't taken on much debt. And then Kind of wisdom went out the window. All of the lessons I'd learned about money went out the window, and I just signed on the dotted line.
1: Yeah. yeah. What else, uh, was there any other debt besides the student loans, or was it uh, the student loans mostly?
0: It was all student loans, and that's what was so amazing is that up until that point, we had been really good. Like We were really good with money. We had credit cards which we managed well. We didn't take out a car note, none of that stuff. But then when I got into law school, this was like further than anyone in my family had gone education wise. So I didn't have any guidance. And the guidance counselor was like, just take out as much money as they'll give you. You want to make sure that you have breathing room. So every year I just took out as much money as they'd give me, which turned out to be a lot of money. (laughs) Some years I didn't even need it because I had scholarship, but I took it and I spent it. Yeah.
1: So how much was the debt in total?
0: So my debt in total was about 210 and my husband's debt was an additional like 60 or 70.
1: Wow. Okay, so you guys were dealing with nearly $300,000 in student loan debt. Correct. Wow, yeah.
0: And we went through grad school during the recession, so our interest rates were in the 8-9% range. Wow. Wow,
1: that's that's a lot of money. So, did your husband also go towards the law profession as well?
0: No, he just got a master's in Latin American policy and development. So his was only a one-year program, two years maybe. It was very short. So it's amazing how much money he took out for such a short program.
1: So with that amount of debt that you guys had for a long period of time, did you find yourself sort of structuring your life around the debt that you owed?
0: Oh my gosh, yes. It was terrible because I'd never had debt before. I didn't know how burdensome and stressful, it felt to carry debt. And nobody ex- kind of explained that emotional, psychological part to me when they said sign and take out as much as you can. They just said, this is what you need. And it'll take stress off of you during law school to know you have enough money. Mm-hmm. And the one said, it's going to put stress on you at like, you're just deferring the stress. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that it's a stress-free decision. And we lived in New York city at the time, which in itself is a really expensive city. And, you know, everyone's like, you'll make a lot of money, which we did. But no one explained that in New York, you know, there's this state taxes and there's city taxes and on top of the federal taxes. And so by the end of the day, you're only bringing home about 40 percent of what you're making or 60 percent of what you're making. You're being taxed about 42 percent, which is different from what you think in your mind when you're like, oh, I'll be making six figures. I'll definitely be able to pay off the debt. But you're not taking home six figures. Yeah.
1: And that's probably how they factor it in, too, when they're saying, hey, when the student loan folks or your your counselors are saying, take as much as you need. You're going to be making six figures, you know, so it makes it seem like a pretty easy situation. So you've um, you've interacted with a a bunch of other lawyers in your in your work as well as your podcast. Have you found there there are a lot of other lawyers in a similar situation with their student loan debt?
0: Absolutely. I think student loan debt amongst lawyers is probably. Averages in the 250 range. There are people who have a ton more because the 250 range is like all of law school. So if you have any undergraduate loans or any other degrees, then you're well, well over three, some into the 400 range. But yeah, I think it's pretty typical for lawyers.
1: Yeah, and then not everybody finishes school too, so or or, or goes into a very lucrative career. So mm-hmm. I guess what happens to those folks?
0: Yeah. Well, that was a particularly interesting thing when I graduated. As I said, we went through law school during the recession. So even when I graduated from law school, I went to one of the top five law schools in the country and only 60% of us got jobs because there's there's not that many jobs and there's certainly not that many high paying jobs. So a lot of those people have now 10 years later found their footing, but those first couple of years were really rough. And it was a lot of like fellowships where they weren't getting paid, but the fellowships allowed them to defer payments. So for a lot of people, the option was to try to do something that would allow them to defer student loans versus take a low paying job. Because if you have $200,000 student loans, your monthly payments, especially at 9% interest, your monthly payments are $2,500 a month. Oh my God. <laughs> so you need, in order to live and pay student loans, you need to be making like $80,000. Like there's no other, there's no other option. Yeah. And that's just to eat and like that's like to live in a one bedroom like rent a bedroom eat food and pay your loans it's it's a it's a big commitment and it put people in a really tough situation luckily around that time income-based repayment had started to become an option for people and so i think with those options people have more flexibility i don't know if that's good or bad because it means people can still take out those types of loans and not make much money but at least it gives people breathing room because i think I can't imagine the stress that must come with deferring $200,000 of loans to not work for two years because that's your best option.
1: it's just taking a problem and then just putting it off for a couple of years. But the problem doesn't go away. As we've talked about, it's a lingering feeling of this is something I'm going to have to do at one point and it's going to take me quite a while. So let's talk about your story. How did you guys decide to get rid of your debt? And then how did you do it?
0: Oh my gosh. So the way we decided, it's kind of funny because I had this big idea. I was going to pay it off as fast as possible. And then I tried to do that. And it was like really hard because again, I didn't realize how much real life costs. So we ended up going overseas for a bit. And as part of that, my law firm paid for an accounting firm to do our taxes because our taxes were so complicated, having traveled for half the year. And when she asked me how much interest I had paid in student loans, I remember telling her something like $32,000. And she was like, no, no, no. I just need to know how much interest you paid last year. And I was like, no, that's what it says on my form. I paid $32,000 in interest last year. And she was like, you know, like she was, and I honestly hadn't really looked at the numbers or like really known what I was paying. I was just sending the payments. And when I heard her shock, I realized how ridiculous my situation was and like how much interest we would just be paying over the years if we didn't really tackle this in a more aggressive manner.
1: So it took the the reaction of someone else to be like, oh, this is what you're dealing with for you to say someone who does it for a
0: living. Yes. That's what I mean. (laughs) Like she sees these things. She knows that this is crazy.
1: Yeah. So at that point, what did you guys do then to say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna go at this head on. What'd you do?
0: Yeah. So we sat down to figure out how much it really costs to live. Like we had our head in the sand up until that point. And so I needed to know how much did it actually cost us to live in New York? Stop complaining about how expensive New York is. And then how much of that extra money could we actually throw towards student loans? And then how do you figure out a plan for paying it down? And once we realized that interest thing was the problem, we decided to refinance. And I think that really helped to shift the conversation because prior to refinancing, I think it was going to take forever, and. At that time, companies like SoFi and Common Bond were just starting. So it was, again, a good time for us to be having these conversations.
1: What did you so, take the interest rate from and then to when you did the refinance?
0: I took it from 8.75 down to six. And then I refinanced again. Like I basically refinanced every 18 months as my debt to income ratio changed. Nice. And so, by the time I paid off my loans, my interest rate was at like two point five, and I was almost like, should I even pay it off at this point?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a great progression. And then, as you were saying, you did it every eighteen months as your debt to income ratio uh, was improved. That talk talk to us about how that works because I don't want to gloss over that because I think that might help some people who are listening today.
0: Yeah, I so one of the things that those companies will look at when they're deciding. How, the, your interest rate, in addition to kind of your work history, your your salary, is how much money do you make in comparison to how much you owe. And obviously, when I started, I owed twice as much as I was making, which is not a great debt-to-income ratio. <laughs> um, I owed more than twice what I was making, to be fair. And then as you make more money and you pay down your debt, that ratio gets better. And once you're making twice what you're you owe... All of a sudden, you're a great credit risk, and so your interest rate comes down significantly.
1: Got it. And then every time that happens, you're able to refinance. And you can refinance how many times?
0: As much as you want. It doesn't cost anything to refinance with these companies. There's no fee for refinancing. So for me, it was mostly the hit to your credit score if you're buying a house or doing other stuff and don't want to take the credit hit. But that's a small price to pay to save you know a couple thousand dollars each year
1: absolutely absolutely okay so outside of refinance what what else did you guys do to start paying the debt down
0: so we were just more careful about tracking our spending and paying ourselves first like the debt got paid off first we automated a lot of that stuff and ultimately the biggest decision we made to pay the debt down quickly was move to dallas we left new york um which was a really big decision. My husband's from California, so getting a California boy to move from the big city down to Dallas, Texas, I feel like it took that entire time just to convince him. Um, But I put a plan in front of him, and I was like, if I can get a job paying this much, this is how much faster we'll be able to pay off the debt. And eventually, we got there and made the move.
1: Excellent. So that's a big change to leave the city that you guys were... You know, used to and and ready to go. So that's that's a that's a big change. What was uh, how, how did those conversations go between you and your husband uh, when you were making those big decisions?
0: Well, so my husband and I are we have a pretty open line of communication when it comes to money, and we actually do these thing. We do these quarterly retreats, the two of us, and we get away for a weekend and we talk about all these things. And so it's something we've built into our relationship for a long time. Um, and so it had been a topic of conversation and. It was one of those things where he could put on the table the things he would need for it to work, and I put on the table the things that I could do to make it. So my family's in Dallas, which is how Dallas came up. And eventually we could get him close enough to all the things he needed to entice him to make the move. And having the goal at the end of the journey was what really got him there. Like Once we were able to pay it off, what would we be able to do?
1: What were some of those dreams you were putting out there to make it uh, exciting?
0: Well, we wanted to move overseas with the kids. That's really what we wanted. And I just it was really hard for me to find jobs that would pay what I got paid in the U.S. And without that salary, we would have to take a big standard of living decrease, especially now with two kids. So it's not that we weren't willing to do that. It was just a harder decision to make and a harder – it just restricted – the options for us, knowing that we needed to make X amount of money in order to send the kids to private school because if we're living overseas, they can't go to public school. We have to cover our own health care. We have to, you know, all these other things that come with living overseas, but we were really excited about doing that. And so if you open up four thousand dollars a month in cash flow, that gives you a lot of options. Wow.
1: So that's that's what you guys were able to regain by eliminating all this debt.
0: Yes, that is a ton of money. (laughs) It
1: definitely is. So what excited uh, you and your husband about living overseas? Was it just the cultural immersion for your children? What excited you about that?
0: So I grew up overseas. I moved to the U.S., so it's not overseas for me. I (laughs) am an immigrant. (laughs) The U.S. is overseas for me. So, you know, like a lot of people, I wanted my kids to have the experiences I had as a child. I loved traveling as a child. I think going to international school, kind of having exposure to different cultures shaped the person I am today. And I wanted my kids to kind of understand a little bit about the person I am through their own experiences. So we had always said that we had up until the oldest started real school, kindergarten to make a decision. So the the clock started running when I got pregnant with my first and we had like six years to figure it out.
1: So when did you guys pay off all of the debt? At what point? How long ago?
0: Great question. So we finished paying off the debt a year and a half ago, and it took us six and a half years. We had planned on five years, but then bought some real estate, had kids, you know, all the things that happen in life that kind of add to your monthly costs. And so we paid it off last, it was last July 20th. I remember the date quite well. (laughs) It was because I got, I got paid my bonus and my bonus covered that last kind of big payment. And it was the most, it's kind of nice to have a last big payment. You know what I mean? I feel like if the last payment's like $150, it's great, but it's not as much fun as when the last payment is kind of like $10,000 because that could have taken another year, but Oh, to see it all disappear in one email is just amazing.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love the smile on your face that's coming across right now. So <laughs> so talk about that that important thing that you talked about right there. When you had those big moments where you got income coming in, did you just take that? You guys were you guys were full focused on student loan. Did you just take 100% of that and throw it out? Or did you guys use some of it for other things? How, how did those work? Like tax returns, uh, bonuses,
0: things like that? Yes. Good. That's a great question. So, the way we had figured it out, we have these meetings and we figured out kind of what our values were. And we felt like having this financial freedom was our number one value. And our second biggest value was travel. And then the third under that was family. And so, everything got this divided in that according to that triangle. So, whether it was our disposable income month to month or windfalls, we said everything extra, like 80% of it goes to loans, 15% goes to travel. And then 5% we kind of keep for like little family stuff at home or, you know, date nights and things like that. So whenever we got a tax return or a bonus, we knew exactly how we just divide it in the same exact way we divide all of our weekly biweekly checks.
1: We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsors. Thanks for taking time to consider our sponsors, everyone. Let's jump back into the show. When you create such a big goal of paying off hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt in a short period of time, there can ultimately be some, you know, some family issues that are associated with that. Did you guys find any of those marital fights along the way with this plan or did it kind of go as planned?
0: I think there were a couple of bumpy spots. We had originally planned when we had our first for my husband to stay home. Living in New York City, childcare is super expensive and it just made the most sense. And shortly after I went back to work, he found a job, his dream job. (laughs) And so there was a big conversation about how do you make that pivot? Like, I don't ever want to be the person who says, no, you can't take your dream job because you made a decision a year ago that now you're going back on. But at the same time, when your dream job doesn't make enough money to cover childcare, how dreamy can it be? And so... (laughs) we had to kind of work through that. He ultimately did end up taking the job and we did end up getting a full-time nanny and, you know, his salary barely covered the full-time like nanny after taxes and all the, you know, incremental costs that comes with now working outside the home in New York city, but he loved it and he was happy. And so it made sense. And then we had a second kid shortly thereafter because it made financial sense now that we already had the nanny. (laughs) We'd already incurred that cost. So, yeah, that was probably our biggest fight because it did feel like I was, you know, from my perspective, it felt like I was sacrificing a lot doing this really hard job to make this really big salary. And I was, you know, we had two young children under the, you know, we had a two-year-old and a baby. And if he hadn't gone back in his job, he traveled a lot for his job and I traveled a lot for my job. And at one point I was doing a deal in Taiwan and I was working like Hong Kong hours and he was in like Bangkok shooting something for his job and I was like this is ridiculous (laughs) like this is crazy I was like we can't live like this like why did you do this to our family and but that's why it's nice because we all these decisions were made together so when I said things like that that were genuinely unfair he didn't do it to our family like we made the decision together he could gracefully remind me that you know We sat down together and decided that this was going to be okay and that we would make it work. So that's how we do things.
1: Those are important things to remember, too. And I think that's a really good point. If you're going to make any big financial decisions or any life decisions, make sure you're on the same page beforehand, because to your point, if you come back afterward... The I told you so conversations are, are a little harder, right?
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it, I mean, it, it does. It's hard for the person who now gets to be told you help. You agreed, though. <laughs> yeah, it's not super fun, but I did agree. So. I had to, if I made the bed with him, I was going to lay in
1: it. So, Akoma, I feel you so much. I've got two young kids. We've been through so much together in our home, making these big decisions, whether it's going to work, not going to work, changing careers, things like that. That is such difficult, but important decisions that you have to make together. And you guys not only survived it, but you crushed hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. So congratulations and tell me what your life is like now that you've made it onto the other side and you guys are getting to make some of those exciting life changes with
0: oh my god $4,000 spare. <laughs> well, so that's the funny thing. So I so after we paid off the debt, we spent a year just like saving money and like trying to figure out where we were going to go. And we were originally going to move to Nicaragua, but then it fell apart politically. And then we were going to move to Southeast Asia. So we took the kids out to Bali to visit, but then we couldn't find the right. And we were kind of panicking because, as I said, we had this timeline of my son starting school. And it like school registrations were starting. And we're like, what are we going to do? So a year ago, we came out to Costa Rica for New Year's to kind of reset because we were like, we have this eight months to figure out next steps. What are we going to do? And fell in love with Costa Rica. Within We came last New Year's. By March, we had bought a house here (laughs) and by summer I gave notice at my job and said, we're going. And so I've actually been on sabbatical since August. Um, I had, strangely enough, I recently got a new job, my dream job, which I start in February and would not have been able to take if I was in Dallas. Wow. So it all kind of has worked out. I wasn't even looking for the dream job. I had planned on taking a one-year sabbatical. I was pretty committed to just enjoying life in Costa Rica, pivoting around my career, focusing on kind of the projects that I like to work on. But about two months into my sabbatical, I got a, a call from a company that I'm really excited to get to work for. And I get to stay in Costa Rica and travel and help the world and do all the things that I went to law school to do. So it's really amazing.
1: I love it. So you, you used to work in corporate law and now you're pivoting into law that you feel a little bit more passionate about if I'm getting it right.
0: Yeah. So I will be working still similarly in corporate law, but the company that I work for now just does more humanitarian work. And so it's just a cause I can really get behind. Yeah which helps, I think, a lot. I mean, everybody goes to law school and says they want to save the world, right? Like they want to, well, not everybody. I'm sure there's that 1% who's like, I just want to make a ton of money. But there's, most people go to law school and they say, I want to like save starving children. I want to like reform the justice system. But then a lot of us, we end up just helping companies make money, which is great and can be intellectually stimulating and all of those things. But it's really hard to be away from your kids 68 hours a week Hmm. to help a company make a lot of money.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so you said that United States is overseas for you. So yes, where where, where are you originally from? Are you from uh, the Costa Rica area? Where, where Where are you originally from?
0: Yeah. So my dad is Nigerian. My mom is Malaysian, but I grew up in Southeast Asia. Hmm. So I was there until high school and then I moved to the U.S. My family moved to the U.S. in high school and I've been back and forth kind of since then.
1: Excellent. Well, that's great. so your your life of travel and culture exposure, you're gonna provide that to your children now. that's that's incredible. So what kind of lessons do you hope your kids maybe have learned from this financial journey of yours? and and I guess were they exposed to some of these conversations and and the plans?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Our kids were very, very involved because we were gonna make this big life change, and we were making a lot of sacrifices in order to make this big life change. And so we would talk to them about how we had these student loans and that's why we made different choices than other families. And these were, were our priorities. These what other family priorities. And it's, you know, when we're recording this, it's right around the holidays. And so Santa Claus was one of the things that that came up with, is why does Santa get other people more mm-hmm. expensive gifts than our Santa? And I said, well, m- maybe Santa understands our values. <laughs> And Santa knows that we're a family that's just trying to live lean in order to do these bigger things. And so my kids are pretty, they're pretty on it when it comes to money and very inquisitive. And we kept them involved in the conversation. So when we were thinking about moving, we did say, you know, if we were to get a house in Costa Rica, what would you want in the house? But in order to have that, that means we need to stop buying stuff in Dallas because all this stuff can't come with us. So I know you want to get, you know, there's kids have so many like movable, they have like scooters and they have bikes and they have those like little squiggly things, you know, the little kid, all those little kid toys. And you go to some people's houses and they have like 10 of them. And there's just like one kid, which is fine if that's how you want to spend your money. No judgment. But then when my kid comes home, he's like, where's my squiggly things? Where's my hoverboard? And I'm like, well, you know, remember... the the surfboard you want in Costa Rica, well, that surfboard's waiting for you on the other side of this decision. So let's just all work together to get there.
1: I love that. And in exchange for more squiggly uh, toys, they get a happier mom and a happier dad that are more content with their lives.
0: Absolutely. And I think the kids get that, you know, and I think even without saying it, they understand the emotional impact that it had on our family. We We were very, we had a big family celebration on that payoff day. Tell me about it. Um, So we actually took a big family trip to Bali, (laughs) which has been, I grew up in Indonesia. And so I've always dreamed about taking the kids back. And kind of one of the, you know, that 15% I was saying travel was kind of saving towards doing something big with the kids. And it also happened to be my mom's 60th birthday. And so she was flying back. So we got to do this whole big family thing. And it was, to be honest, the best part of the whole trip for me was I got to pay for my mom's birthday. And I'm feeling I'm gonna cry. And it was her whole family. And obviously things are relatively cheap in Southeast Asia. So it wasn't like a, you know, tens of thousands of dollars dinner. It was, you know, maybe a thousand dollar dinner. But to be able to pay for dinner for my mom, her entire family, all their kids, and just, like, do it. Like, my parents sacrificed a lot. I had been through a lot. And to have my kids there to see what's possible if you get your money in order just felt, like, really big. So...
1: That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate that. And that that was probably a life-defining moment for you. And as you said, a life-defining moment for your kids to see that. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this new book that you wrote, uh, Money Monsters. This is exciting because I've been really enjoying this with with my daughter and we're talking about the importance of money lessons for kids. So tell us why you decided to write this book and what's it about?
0: Oh, absolutely. So I love the book. The book is one of the many projects that I was speaking about that I get to work on now that I'm in Costa Rica. A few years back, people started to notice the types of conversations I was having with my children around money. And they felt more honest and transparent, but age appropriate than other people's conversations. My son was asking me at the time if he could finance a bike and he was talking about his like down payment and I was, uh, and uh, he was, and I was like, well, you don't have any income. Like, I can't, like, <laughs> how are you going to finance something when you don't have like any cash, money coming in? And he actually helps us. We have some real estate that we bought when they were born to help pay for their college. And so he was like, well, I can use the real, the rental income. And I was like, well, that's not your money yet. <laughs> like that's your, but like just the fact that he was like putting all these pieces together at like four, <laughs> was like, (laughs) you know, and people were like, no, (laughs) there has, you're clearly having conversations that I'd like to be having with my kids. And so I was trying to think about the best way to do that. And obviously I went to all the like super complicated ways of doing it. I was like, oh, I could start a business. I could have a digital course. I could do, and I was like, you know what, what's one thing every parent does with their kids. Every parent reads books with their kids and they're already having conversations every night with their children. And so what if I could just write a story that integrated those topics in a way that would get kids to ask questions? And I didn't want it to be one of those like Johnny goes to the bank books, which are fine and have their educational purpose. I wanted it to be a book where kids were like, wait, what's going on? Wait, is that real? So that parents had an opportunity to to actually have a conversation. Because sometimes with those books, I find that parents are kind of trying to force the conversation to say, do you notice what's happening at the bank? You know, like, what, what do you think this is? Whereas I really wanted the book to have imagery and stories in it where the kids are like, wait, are ATMs monsters? (laughs) And then parents get to share their knowledge. And I think for so many parents who themselves are having trouble with money, they feel like they don't have information to share with their kids. And so these books provide an opportunity for parents to realize that what they know is enough. And what you're trying to teach your kids isn't every single thing about money. My parents didn't teach me anything about money. My parents are great people and wonderful parents, but they grew up in a completely different financial system. So they didn't teach me what I know, but they taught me how to be confident enough and comfortable enough to feel like I could figure it out, right? Like I could ask questions and not feel like I was too dumb to figure it out or didn't know enough to be able to handle it myself. And so I want people to be able to instill that in their kids. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask dumb questions like, are ATMs monsters? Um, and there's somebody out there who knows the answers and they'll help you figure it out. And everything you figure out along the way will help you get to a better financial future. And so the first book, as I've alluded to here, is about an ATM monster that eats Kai, who's the main character's little money. And his parents help explain to him that it's not a monster and how the money gets into a bank and why it's there and working on books two and three now, which tackle book two, tackles credit cards and borrowing responsibly. And in which, you know, Kai thinks credit cards are magic money. And so he's trying to like figure out a plan to steal the magic money. And his parents explain to him, it's not magic. You have to pay it back. And we go through that whole conversation. And then the third book is about entrepreneurship and, you know, Kai tries to start a lemonade stand, like an old school lemonade stand and realize he hates making lemonade. And there's like the profit margins are terrible And so it's a a story about how you can make money doing what you love. And so he finds something that he actually enjoys that has better profit margins. (laughs) And it's much more profitable for him because he's more willing to do the work. And so it's a great book about kind of not just looking around to figure out what to do for a living, but really figuring out what you're good at and what you want to do with the days of your life. So I'm excited to get those out.
1: Well, Zoe and I have really been enjoying the first book in the series, and I can't wait to buy the next two. So when can we expect the next ones? And, and where, actually, where can we buy this current book? Yes. Let's talk about that. And then we can talk about the, the dates for the next ones.
0: Yeah. So the book, you can buy it um, on Amazon. They're available there and you can get them at their, the website, moneymonstersbooks.com and books two and three will be out in the spring.
1: Awesome. Well, I um, we've really been enjoying it. I love the lessons. I also love how it is today it is a lot of the books we read are maybe a couple decades old um and you're talking about fintech you're talking about apps you're talking about things that you know the financial industry is moving fast and you've brought us up to today at least i'll say for sure so uh, Akoma, thank you so much for your time today where can people learn more about you if they want to connect with you or, or follow your journey
0: Oh, Thanks so much. Yep. So the best way to find me is at the happy And you can follow me on Instagram at the same handle. Um, I'm always on there. So if you have any questions, especially around money with your kids or moving your kids overseas, I love to talk about all those things.
1: Akoma, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for inspiring those folks out there who are dealing with this massive amount of student debt, and then giving them a look of what it can be on the other side of your debt freedom. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Andy, for having
1: me on. Accomplishing huge financial goals and having your kids there to see the big family victory. Incredible. Very cool. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Akoma Moronu Schrainer. Number one, refinancing your student loans can help. This simple student loan hack saved Akoma and her husband upwards of $1,000 per year. If you have a big amount of student loans and you have a high interest rate, consider refinancing as a way to save and eliminate your loans quicker. Number two, make communicating with your spouse a priority. A coma and her husband had a lot of loans, two small kids, and very little time to relax. But even with all of those obstacles, they made it a priority to communicate with each other. These chats and retreats they'd do would allow them to keep dreaming of the future life that they would have with no loans and jobs of their dreams. Number 3, celebrate when you do something incredible. Akoma opened up and shared that she paid for a $1000 dinner for her family, and that gesture, that moment, that was a big deal for her. Not only did it signify a moment of celebration for her family, but it signified a moment of gratitude for her parents and her extended family. Almost like, thank you for what you've done for me. Now it's my turn to honor your hard work by taking my family to the next level. Akoma, congratulations on this monumental family moment. You have truly strengthened your family tree, and I feel honored that I was able to hear about it from you. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Before we go for the day, I'd like to ask you to do any one of these three things to support this show. Number one, join the Marriage, Kids & Money community newsletter. For signing up, I'm giving away a free copy of my ebook, The Young Family Wealth Playbook, Seven Steps to Solidifying Your Young Family's Wealth, Check it out at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash playbook. Number two, subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast player. And then the last thing, number three, share this episode with a friend who also has a lot of student loan debt and they're looking for an inspiring story to get them through it. You can find this show and all the links and resources mentioned at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 174. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 174. And if you're new to the show, I would highly recommend you check out Session 116, The 10 Steps to Young Family Wealth and Happiness. You can find that at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Session 116. It is a great place to start. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Sam Levinson. Don't watch the clock. Do what it does. Keep going keep pressing forward on your big goals, my friends. Carpe diem!